Thanks for listening to the Tribe Church Podcast. Our prayer is that these episodes bless and equip you in your apprenticeship to Jesus. Our goal as a community is to become more like Jesus and to offer Him through our lives to those around us here in Austin, Texas. More like Jesus, more for others. For more on our church, check out atxtribe.org. God bless. So we're in the middle of a series called Unhurried. And what we did is we wanted to sort of reevaluate and unpack the way we think about uh, how we think about work from a spiritual perspective and how we think about rest. So we sort of front loaded it with the rest part because we're Americans and we don't like to rest. So we need to learn how to rest. Uh, but now we're sort of transitioned into, into what unpacking the understanding of work through the Bible. The very first message was was given to us by Steve Garber. If you're on the east side, you, you can watch it online if you'd like. But Steve Garber is a friend of mine um, who I sort of contacted and we became friends um, a while ago when I started reading his books. And I basically flew him out here. I just begged him, hey, can you, can you come? We have an amazing group of people. Can you come and speak to us? And he is one of the fathers of occupational theology, which is a cool title if you think about it, right? Quite unique. So he's very, very respected. Um, and he gave us, uh, and just he was. Uh, somebody told me uh, who was here. It's like having Socrates preach on Sunday, right? He's <laughs> that kind of presence about him. Uh, so I'll have to follow that up, which is an unfortunate thing for me. Uh, but the title of today's message is "Sacred Work." Um, and uh, before I start, I want to I want to give you book. You know, books are amazing. So here's a couple of books that I recommend. The one on the left is a, a book by um, Brother Lawrence. He was a French soldier uh, in the sixth, 17th century who was wounded. He became um, a, um, a pot scrubber in a monastery. He wasn't even a full-blown um, monk, right? Uh, and his letters to one of his friends were re- kept by his friends and then p- published later. And he became a, an, a Christian classic. Uh, that has been, of course, going, being reprinted. Imagine being a pot scrubber and your work is being reprinted for 300 years, 400 years. Um, so the reason I, wanna, I want you to take a look at this, it's a, it's a little, it's very fast read because it's just a, a, set, a, a set of letters. But this is a man who understands sacred work. This is a man who worked in the kitchen in a monastery in what some might consider doing work that is beneath them, right? Um, and his, he is ultimately consumed with the joy of his work before God. So he is probably the embodiment of sacred work because all work can be sacred. The second one is by Dan, uh, Rab, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. And he's a fascinating guy. He's, he lives in America in the Pacific Northwest, I believe. And he uh, has this um, book called Thou Shalt Prosper, uh, Ten Commandments for Making Money. Now, if Ten Commandments for Making Money makes you, makes you cringe, you need to read the book. And I'll tell you why. Because it, there's this sort of, uh, I think what Steve Garber refers to as dualism, right? When we as Christians, some, we read Ten Commandments for Making Money and we think it's beneath us, it's not sacred. That's precisely why the book was written, you know? And I'll explain to you a little bit about it. But he, what he, the, the insight that he offers is that, that in, in the Jewish tradition, how making money in professional work is part of the sacred part, uh, part of the sacred 
uh, not of the secular. So really, really helpful uh, read. Actually hel helped me tremendously because I've had a complicated um, story with money myself. You know, uh, I have this very dualistic thing. I think it was, I think it was uh, um, inherited from my communist parents, right? Uh, so I've been sort of trying to be healed from that for a long time, and this book helped me a lot. So, how do you think of your professional life? Is it something that you, is it a, just a job? It might feel just a, as, as just a job. Is it something that you have to do because you want to put foot on the table? Is there a space there? where it can become a sacred thing. I suggest to you that your professional journey, most likely than not, is still part of this great question, existential question is, of what is my purpose, right? When you do your job, there's this tension of why am I doing this? What is my purpose? And it sort of blends into the existential angst of every single person in this room, every single one of us, has this question sort of humming in the background all the time, all the time. Um, I wanted to, so my, my journey is a professional journey. I, I'll tell you later why I'm telling you this. So I studied economics in college. Um, my first job, in, at the time where I lived, you couldn't uh, work as a teenager. My kids started working at 16, both, all, all three of them actually. Um, and, but I started working at probably 19, because it was illegal to work before that. Uh, so uh, it was, I was still in college. My first job was at, at a European publication uh, that was sort of an English-speaking publication. But I was, gonna, I, I was an assistant, so I, I, would, I would show up in the morning and read what is written in the local press, and then translate sort of the key things that I thought would be good for the publication in English. Um, and I would recommend the journalist, th you might want to look into that, right? So I'd like, come in, type up, uh, sort of bullet points of what's in the news, and then they would run with it. Um, and it was, um, it was actually really fascinating because I would just pick like crazy, crazy stories because no I had no oversight. So I was like, hey, let's meet the sect of Satanists, you know? Because <laughs> it was fun for me like just to do something like that, right? Uh, so I would recommend crazy stories to my journalists. Um, my second job was an intern at a trading company. So I graduated with a degree in economics and I had some friends who had a trading company uh, and I would go to these meetings where people would dis uh, discuss mining enriched iron, coal, you know, like it's just, and I would just be sitting there and I was very artistic and creative and I would just sit there going, what on earth am I doing here? This is not at all uh, where am I supposed to be doing? It's so boring. I was bored to death and I worked like that for a little bit. And then I started a music career because I was like, you know what, in my 20s, I might experiment. And if, if, I, if I, you know, it, I'll probably fail, but I'll give it a try. You know, that was sort of my thing. And, uh, and I was actually surprisingly successful at that. Um, and it was also an entrepreneurial job. And I think that was sort of my first job where I started something from nothing, like started a company. Um, and that's where I got the bug, the entrepreneurial bug. Uh, because it was not a salary job. It was, you know, something that didn't pay. It was more, more likely to fail than not to fail. And it, all of a sudden, it didn't fail. And, and, and that was sort of the beginning of the, of the entrepreneurial journey, and my brain sort of expanded into that kind of possibility. My fourth job after that was a preacher. 
You know, I was an entertainer for a few years. I became a Christian. And I was just honestly compelled and moved by the Holy Spirit that if I can entertain thousands of people, I can probably speak to thousands of people. And uh, in not doing that felt wrong. I wanted to do it. And I felt like I could be compelling because I loved Jesus and uh, I was excited about it. And I overflowed with that. Uh, so I became a preacher. Then my fifth job was I was an executive at a charity, right? A philanthropy sort of dimension um, for a few years. And basically, so I just described this, uh, this the, the job's history, right? And ever since then, all of my occupational stuff has been these four things. Entrepreneur, pastor, creative, philanthropist. Entrepreneur, pastor, phil uh, uh, all in different combinations, right? Even until now, it's sort of a combination of those, two, of, of those four things. Um, the reason I tell you this is because most of us don't even end up working in the field that we studied in college. Right, because we're searching, right? We change lanes, we change industries, we change you know, uh, approaches and things like that because we're all trying to sort of answer this question, why am I here, why am I here, why am I here? Um, in, the, in the words of um, a prominent theologian by the name of Derek Zoolander, He says, I'm pretty sure there's a lot more to life than being really, really, really ridiculously good looking. And I plan on finding out, out, out what it is. I'm dating myself. I love Zoolander. But you know what? It's, what's funny about this movie is that they show this guy who is like, you know, have, has the IQ probably of a, you know, of a doorknob, right? And he is wrestling with the same question. And he goes, that's what I am. I'm ridiculously good looking, right? Uh, but there's got to be something more <laughs> to life than that. Um, and I think we all, all wrestle with that. Uh, when Steve Garber was visiting, you know, I, I spent a few hours with him here and there, and I would just, you know, I was like, okay, I'm in the presence of this guy who's been thinking about this for a long time. And, uh, and I, would, I would basically ask him, you know, we had this late night session where I said, okay, so I sort of am an entrepreneur, I'm a pastor, a creative and philosopher's. Um, what am I doing, right? <laughs> Why am I here? And, and it doesn't, see, see, as you get older, you might get more clarity, but the angst and the question of your vocation versus your occupation does not go away. You know, you can be in the 20s and you're wrestling with that. You can be in your 50s and you're wrestling with that. It just doesn't go away. But, it's, but it also sticks with you, right? It tortures you a little bit. Why am I here? And uh, so I, I was poking. I was like, okay, Steve, I got, I got the master. In, I'm in the presence of this guy. And he's going to give me an answer. That's sort of what was my, my hope was, right? And I've been going back and forth with him for, about this for a while, about vocation. Because I, I, I geek out on things like that. And, uh, and after sort of pouring my soul to him, I'll go, here's what I'm doing. And... What am I doing wrong? And what am I, is there something you could tell me? Guide me, tell me, Yoda, where to go, right? And, 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 he, and, he, and he looked at me and he goes, and praise the Lord that you're doing that. <laughs> and I said, really, that's, what, that's all you have for me? Praise the Lord? <laughs> and basically, the answer to that is yes. That's all he had for me. Um, so he... So I'm not going to give you something that will blow your mind, but what, what I want to give you is questions to ask. 
and questions to wrestle with. Um, and here's the first question. Am I experiencing work as sacred? Am I experiencing work as sacred? The text for this, to wrestle with this, to dig into it, to wrestle with God, to talk to each other about it, is in Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So in this text, there's a lot of secrets for us. There's a lot of treasures for us. If we dig, if we contemplate, if we actually take the time to soak it in, to pray it in, to discuss it. One of the, a few things about work that this text gives us is, is the following. First of all, that work predates the fall. So the fall, one of the curses of the fall, you know, I don't know if you remember the Genesis 1, but for the woman is that they're suffering a childbirth. Right? And, and it's fascinating, like you think about it and go, really, is that a curse? And I've talked to my wife several times about this. She goes, yeah, that's a curse. Uh, and for the man, is that it's going to be hard to make a living. And for most of us, that is true. And yet work itself uh, predates the fall. And it's actually mentioned by, by God in Genesis as a blessing. So let me ask you more quality questions that you can ask yourself, right? These are things that can, change, will change, can and will change your life if you meditate on them. Am I an image bearer of God? That is what Genesis says. You are an image bearer of God. How, if you experience yourself as, as an image bearer of God, will absolutely transform the way you work. Transform the way you work. Every day, we should ask yourself and remind ourselves, I'm an image bearer of God. Therefore, what's the next question? If you're an image bearer of God, you're also a creator like God is. Right? You're a creator. Do you know that we have all kinds of living beings on earth, and the human being is the only one that has the urge to create just for the sake of creation? We draw pictures, we tell stories, we make beautiful things. That is the mark of an image bearer of God. We write books, we build bridges, we build buildings, and we don't just build them, we make them beautiful. Why? They can just be functional, but we make them beautiful because we want to, because we are pleased to. We create clothes, they can just be warm or or inexpensive, but we make them beautiful. We wear them and buy them, not just because they're clothes, but because it makes us feel different, right? 
We create order out of chaos. What you see here is image bearers of God that made order out of the natural state. This is probably a forest or a meadow, right, a while ago. And now there's wood and the guitars and strings and electronics and metals combined in a certain way. There's seats and a theater and lights and screens and speakers. This is human beings subduing nature and creating order out of chaos. And we're also stewards, right? So we're charged to take care of the environment that we were given. And the, question, the third question is, am I a steward of creation? Am I, an, am I an image bearer of God? Am I a creator like my father is? Am, an, am I a steward of, of creation? See, these can be questions that you can probably think, oh, this is too abstract. It's actually not abstract. It can change your life if you ask those questions. The quality of the questions you ask about life will determine the quality of your life. The depth of the questions you ask will determine the quality of your life and how you go about life. Is your, is your work experience a sacred? I would say that any work you do, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how simple or complex, how glamorous or unglamorous, how visible or invisible is sacred work in the eyes of God if you allow scripture to infuse you with meaning. And that's why Brother Lawrence uh, is a great read. Right? Um, Ephesians 2.10, it affirms that we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Imagine how, think about this. You are God's masterpiece. I don't always feel like a masterpiece, do you? I often don't, I often feel like, you know, God messed up when he created me. Because there's something missing here. You know, when you have a conflict with someone, when you have a conflict with someone you love, your wife, for example, and you go, wow, I'm exasperating my wife again. What is wrong with me, right? But you are God's, God's handiwork. There's a reason you were made a certain way. And if you ask that question and internalize that answer, over and over again, it changes the way you see the world. On top of that, he says, the, the author of Ephesians, that you are, crea you are God's handy handiwork created to do good works that God in advance has for you to do, right? So all that you are, all that you do, the journey that is never a straight line, it's sort of a, wiggle, a wiggly thing that goes like this, right, of your professional life, there's a reason for that. There's a searching in that, but it's us, like Derek Zoolander, figuring, is there more to life than being ridiculously good-looking? <laughs> right? <laughs> so the question is, do I believe that I'm God's handiwork? Do I really believe that? And in order for us to believe it, it's not a wishful thinking. This is, according to the Bible, this is reality. This is the, the truest truth of your life. You 
or God's handiwork. And everything else is a lie. So how, you, how do you experience yourself? Are you God's handiwork, right? That's why we do church together. Why? Because if you walk with people who believe they're God's handiwork, and you talk with people, and you pray with people, and you share with people, and you share your insecurities, and you confess, and you're, you can be safe and weak around people who you trust, they will remind you that you are God's handiwork. That's why it's good to be the church. That's why it's good to be together, right? What are the good works prepared for me in advance, right? Relentlessly pursue that answer. That's my recommendation, right? Uh, so Steve and I have were, you know, I've been reading his books and I've been calling him and sort of harassing him uh, for months, months and months and months, right? And, and when I read that, I said, okay, so I've been, so I had an exchange with him and I said, you know, I would go, okay, so what, am, what are the works prepared for me to do? Like, I don't, uh, these are the occupations and it's, it, it, when in my moments of insecurity, I feel like I'm ADD and I can't make up my mind, right? Like there's too many things. And he goes, what is, and I, and I asked, so what is the difference between my occupation and my vocation, my calling? And it's, it's, it's fascinating how talking to him and praying to God and talking to Deb, of course, all the time, right? She, you know, I like, go, we go on a walk and I go, Deb, let me ask you this. This is what I'm thinking, right? Um, and is that the occupations were different. So I listed a few jobs. I've had more, obviously. But these are the categories of jobs. And sort of over time, what I've, what I've crystallized, at least so far, is that the, the occupations were all these different things, but the vocation, the callings, are the same across those things. And I'll give you an insight into my process, right? So here's where I landed with me, right? It's that vocationally, calling-wise, I'm an evangelist. I like revealing good news to people. So that's a vocation. That's something in my bones. That's something that I think God just infused me with, right? I don't know why I can't explain it, but that's a vocation, not an occupation. The other uh, vocation is I'm a builder. I like, I have this desire to build stuff so I can write songs and build companies. I've started three companies and two charities in my life, right? Um, I have this hunger for that for whatever reason. I don't know why. I, I'm assuming that that's the stuff that God gave me to do in advance, right? I'm just discovering what he already gave me to do. The other thing is sort of culture. I'm really fascinated with culture and shaping culture. And tribe is some, one of those things that we go, we were sort of dreaming together with, with the, the founding team here is how can we do church in a way that is th the most approximate to what we see in scripture, the most approximate that resonates with our hearts. And I love that culture is something that people do and think without being told what to do and think. So I'm fascinated with culture and, you know, and I think that's just a vocation thing, right? It's not an occupation. And the fourth thing is remembering the poor. Um, somehow I feel compelled from the inside out to remember the poor, to serve the poor, to help the refugees in Ukraine. It's just there, right? 
and, and how it got there, that's a whole different question. I have theories about it, but it's there. That's a vocation. It's not an occupation. Um, so basically, I think the answer to if you're searching for your vocation, which is your deeper calling from what we see in Ephesians, is you know, the process of changing jobs and switching around and sort of wandering sometimes what feels like in the desert, it's really a process of, of going through occupations so we can clarify our vocation. Does that make sense? Like you, you, just, you just poke around and you get lost and it feels more like this and it feels more like that. And, and you're trying to find, you know, the why am I here answer, question. Have it answered, like Zoolander, right? Um, and the problem with that, 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 with that quest is that it will never be fully complete. Yeah? Uh, Steve Garber, again, calls it the proximate. That we need to be able to accept the approximation of clarity. And that's sort of a, in a, a um, we don't like approximations, we like clarity, you know? Uh, but, but I think that's, that's the best we can hope for, to be honest with you. To be honest with you is, if you can find your vocation in broad strokes, hallelujah. God be praised. I think that's what Steve was telling me. God be praised. I said, yeah, but I need more clarity. He goes, sorry. <laughs> right? Um, and then turning around and treating your work as sacred, regardless of how aligned your work is, with your vocation or how misaligned in your feelings your work is with vocation. In Colossians 3, the author says this, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a, as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So work as worship is a core Christian value. Work as worship. You might not even like your work, but you're called, invited, compelled to work as you work for the Lord. And your boss for sure will not look like the Lord more times than often, or sound like the Lord, or feel like the Lord. And yet you're, as a Christian, invited to work at whatever you do. Ask for the Lord. Now, Going back to the Jewish tradition, remember that book that I recommended earlier on? It's really fascinating how this kind of approach shapes a culture. If you think about that way, if we think about that way, it can transform the way we operate. And case in point, what I think the Christian faith actually eventually, under the influence of other philosophies, brought culture to, is a dualism of separation from the sacred um, and, um, and the secular, right? So jobs became secular. It's just the thing you do to put food on the table. And that's just not the biblical view of things. Clearly, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, work is sacred. It's very, very clear. To give you an example, in the Jewish tradition, business is good, moral, noble, and worthy, right? Good, moral, noble, and worthy in the Jewish tradition. So the people that didn't, that tradition kept work as sacred. 
and I can give you a description on how it influenced culture and how it influenced the way people operate. So through the centuries, as you probably know, the Jews were per heavily, heavily persecuted in Europe. Heavily persecuted through the centuries. And what happened is because the, the culture was so strong, it persisted, right? And this idea of that is noble, that is good, that is worthy, um, actually infused the culture that was as a, at a disadvantage economically to become very successful economically. And there's all kinds of theories and conspiracy theories about, you know, if you look at the, at the Forbes uh, list of the richest people in the world, there's a huge disproportion of, of people of Jewish descent. Have you, uh, you, you probably didn't see this, but if you look it up, it's amazing. You know, the, the Jews in the, in the United States are less than 3%, and I think they're like at a 50 or 60% of the Forbes list. And the question is why? There's all kinds of theories, right? Okay, this is a conspiracy, you know, evil, weird theories. But Daniel Lappin, um, the rabbi who wrote that book, Thou Shalt Prosper, basically explains it, that it's because of the cultural understanding of work as sacred. That it's noble, it's good, and it's worthy. Uh, one, one amazing example is this. In the, uh, in the Middle Ages, um, Jews in Europe were, couldn't live anywhere they wanted. They were sort of confined into ghettos. Um, sometimes they couldn't, for periods of time, they couldn't own property, they couldn't own land. They couldn't practice just any profession. They were just com confined to sort of the scraps of the table. You can do this, this, and this, but not this, this, and this. And one of the uh, scraps from the table, from a dualistic um, society, was finance. Right? So basically credit, right? Money lending was considered beneath uh, what the, the, and by the church, it was by the church. It was considered something that Christians shouldn't do. So they just sent those scraps from the table to the Jews, who actually happened to be, to consider work as noble, worthy, and moral. And what happened is then Jews went into finance that way, right? They were forced by an oppressive, limiting context into that profession. Okay, you can have that. This is beneath us. But then because of the culture of sacred work, that elevated them into unexpected uh, dominance and wealth, right? To give you an example, imagine the, in the Middle Ages, m moving money from place to place was, was a dangerous proposition. Right? You, you can have a bug, bag of money on your horse, you go from Florence to Constantinople, there's a high chance you're going to lose that money on the way. Somebody will take it from you. Instead, people would go to a banker, a Jewish banker in, in Florence, and say, hey, I want this gold only in Constantinople with no risk. No problem. This Jewish banker would write a note, just a, just a note. Go to this place, see this banker in Constantinople, he'll give you the gold. I mean, can you imagine the value of that? And he'd make his way, go to Constantinople, hand a handwritten note that communicates this person that considers work noble and worthy and has integrity. And he will do good on his promise. He'll give it to another guy who is in the same culture, in the same value, 
and he provides that service, right? So that's how it all started, right? Um, uh, Daniel Lapp and basically says, let me, let me show you how that, that works, even in the Jewish culture. There's na names, last names, Jewish last names. A lot of them, disproportionately so, uh, are uh, talking about prof uh, professional alignment. So they define themselves by their work. So the last name Kaufman, it means merchant. The last name Brower means brewer. Schuster means cobbler. Snyder means tailor. Rabinovich means rabbi. Schumacher, shoemaker. Hammer, blacksmith. Lane, dealer in cloth, linen. Right? And the list goes on and on and on and on. But it's that disproportionate amount of Jewish names that are connected to professions. Why? Because work is sacred. Work is part of your identity. Work is noble. Right? Um, there's, a, there's a Jewish proverb in, in Proverbs 22, 29 that says this. Do you see someone skilled in their work? They will serve before kings. You see how that DNA was planted in the culture? And somehow we lost it as Christians, I think, many times. Oftentimes it's dualistic, it's separate. It's just a job, it's nothing. Do you see someone skilled at their work? They will serve before kings. You know, one of the least monetizable occupations is being an artist. I don't know if you, you know, if you get, you know, there's a reason why people don't want to, you know, don't. Parents don't like their kids going to, to learn dancing or sing, sing or filmmaking, things like that, right? All of my three kids are humanitarian, humanities, dancers, that kind of thing. Um, you know, if you, go, if you have an engineering degree, you have a high probability to get a job after, right? If you're an accounting degree or finance degree or uh, whatever else, a myriad more degrees, you have a high probability of landing a job. If you learn music, Right, your high probability of being uh, broke and without a job, you know. And of course, after getting a degree in economics, I go into music. Right, <laughs> and of course, my parents were very worried and stuff like that. Right, so I go into music, and it's terrible for a long time until you get skilled. So since you know I've been fairly successful as a musician, I've had a lot of musicians ask me. You know, so how do you monetize this passion that I have? And they feel, I mean, and artists feel it's, actually, artists disproportionately highly look at their profession as a vocation. I want to do music or I'll die, you know? I think there's something about, I think it was, I get quoted Monty Python, I, will, I have to sing or something like that. I haven't, I miss Monty Python, I miss that cultural, that cultural dimension at all, but I, I hear there's something like that. I, I want to sing. So that was me, right? Like, my parents were like rolling their eyes, going, oh, whatever, seriously, get serious. Uh, so I talk to artists uh, quite a bit, oftentimes, and, and they ask me, so how do you monetize? And the, and the question, the, the, what I tell them is like, look, create art, give it away, do it for free, until someday you'll be skilled enough and someone will ask you how much. And that's when you become a professional. And that's what the scripture says. Do you see someone skilled in their work? Is skill a core value for you in your job? 
if you look at money as a byproduct, you have to work, focus on scale and service. Money is just a byproduct. Money is basically how people value your skill. So if, you, if your ultimate goal is to make money, that's a terrible goal to have. Your goal is not to make money. Your goal is to serve people well. Serve people better than the next guy. Money is just an outcome. And that is the biblical view. Are you skilled at your work? Because ultimately you will stand before kings. Focus on the skill. Focus on service. There was, a, there was an 18th century Jew uh, that started a finance business, and his name was Mayor Rothschild. Created one of the biggest family fortunes in history. So the, 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 name, the last name Rothschild is now associated with wealth, right? It's unlikely to, that we think of it related to an, an oppressed minority, which it, they were. A few other names, Solomon Brothers, Lehman Brothers, Golden Sachs. Sound familiar? Somebody was skilled at their job a long time ago. And somehow in their cultural DNA, they treated their job as part of their identity, as something valuable, something noble. Of course, that's not how we associate those names with after the crash of 2008, right? Uh, but that's how it started, regardless of how you think about the practices of, of the finance sector right now. But that's how it started. Uh, I'll tell you one more story before we pray for communion and we contemplate on, on Ephesians 2. His name is Hans Hess, and this guy, his, his occupation was, was just for many, as many of us, a a sort of winding road, right? So he studied physics for a while, then he studied theology for a while, and then he ended up working on Capitol Hill, um, helping a congressman. I mean, what a, what a journey, right? And in, in this winding road of, of his vocational, uh, professional journey, he, he actually ended up finding his vocation. So the way it happened was, his, his name is Hans Hess, I think I mentioned that. Um, is that he was working for this congressman, and this congressman, as, as they have aides you know, to do research, he basically asked them, hey, I'm looking into whatever policy, and what I want to find out is, why, why are antibiotics given to children, um, how are they, it seems, it seems from some context that they're becoming less effective. Why is that? So he start, started doing the research, and what he found is that there's a connection between um, the meat that's being produced on an industrial level and, and the antibiotics that were given to the cows to make them grow fatter and healthier and quicker, um, this, these antibiotics essentially make, it, make their way to the hamburgers that make their way into the bodies of children. And because the, the bodies of children have these sort of base sort of levels of antibiotics, when they need the antibiotics, they're not as effective. So Hans looked at that, and it was an amazing sort of discovery for him, and somehow it triggered his vocation in him. And what he did, he started a hamburger company, right? And the hamburger company was devoted to, to making sort of the great, the classic American meal, right, the burger and fries, but to have them healthy, organic, grass-fed, completely natural. 
and tasty because, look, our kids, they don't care what's healthy and not healthy. If it's not tasty, it's not tasty. Um, so he started this company um, called Elevation Burger. And it, there's, they have 40 restaurants around the U.S. and internationally right now. Um, and it's an award-winning uh, chain of restaurants um, because it's also very, very tasty. So see, do you see how occupation goes to, to vocation? And that's all of our journeys. That's all of our search. Um, there's a video out. I'll, I'll post it on Facebook um, where Hans Hess uh, talks about it. And he goes, should Christians take care of the environment? Question mark. We are created in an environment. God gave it to us to care for. Once you look back at Genesis, that's exactly what it says, right? And um, the way I found uh, out about Hans Hess, and he actually tells the tells story in the video, is that somehow uh, Steve Garber walked into the restaurant, and, and he, he, was, he happened to meet Hans there, and he approached Hans and he goes, like, I look at what you're doing here. And let me ask, can I ask you this? Are you a Christian? And Hans says, yes, I am a Christian. And Steve said, I can tell because of how you do your work. It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Now Steve Garber is his mentor, you know. <laughs> um, so I hope this has given you some appetite to think about your occupation and the tension between your occupation and your vocation and the desire to ask quality questions about what you do. You do this every day for eight hours a day, minimum, most of us. It should matter, shouldn't it? Like our most, our most creative hours of most of our days, this is what we do. It has to mean something, right? There has to be more to life than being ridiculously good looking. <laughs> and we need to plan to find out what that is. So as we break for communion, as we contemplate um, the Lord's Supper, I want to leave this Ephesians 2 scripture on, on, the, on the screen for you. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to good, to good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.